What's up, everybody? Episode Trace of the Alpha Wave After Hours with your host, Cody Pierce. And um, Dr. Thunder, Mark St. John. And... Deal with it. Okay. <laughs> and today we have a uh, a very special guest, a longtime friend of ours, networking extraordinaire, Dungeons and Dragons fan, and uh, all around good guy, Jack Stonebreaker. What up? JJ? How's it going? It's good to good to talk with you guys and. Yeah, I was I was trying to think exactly how long it has been, and I heard on one of the other podcasts. How, how long have y'all known each other now? Is it twenty five years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was nineteen ninety seven. It's crazy. And when did I meet you? Let's see here. When okay, so there's a weird period where I was. Uh, I think some of us were adjacent because we were dialing into boards. Um, and would actually know possibly each other by handle. I definitely knew Dusty um, by handle, but like it's weird because I was in a different. Y'all were up in Dallas, and I was in Houston at that time. Yeah, so, you were in seven one three, right? Yep, yep. I did seven one three, and actually like ran boards down there and hung with uh, the twenty six hundred crew from. Mr. Man, some of the, the CDC folks, drunk fucks, all those guys, we would, you know, meet at the gallery, uh, food court. Cause that's what you did. It's the cool place. That's right. Uh, and you could get your orange Julius or your Sabaro. <laughs> you, you'd get your orange Julius and you would sneak in the little, uh, the booze to do floaters in your orange Julius in exchange for printed out text files. Yeah. That was the currency. So we, we must have met later, maybe 98 or 99 when yeah. I was, when I was coming to Austin every once in a while. It, it probably was 98, 99. I, I went to UT or I came up to go to school at UT in 98. So, um, it was probably, uh, yeah, it, it must've been right around there because I think actually we knew each other from scene before, but it was actually getting into the rave scene and kind of like, pound TX raves or whatever is probably the first place that we started to kind of cross paths. And then we kind of figured out, Oh wait, you, you're in this scene and it, it got tied together there, which is so, weird. Cause rush, my, my brother-in-law, um, same deal, but like he was in Louisiana and Seattle, but again, it's, it was a small, it was a small circle back then. Yeah. There, there wasn't enough, I mean, you could like, you would hear someone's handle and you'd kind of remember it. I think that was kind of the deal of having handles. Right. Yeah. And so you'd hear a handle and maybe they were in a text file or maybe they were a friend or in a different area code in Texas. There were probably four to five different major area codes. There was eight, one, seven, two, and four in DFW where we were. 713. I don't think 281 was around yet, right? No, it, it started because that was like a, was, that was a badge of honor in Houston. We were dialed all of 713, like the whole prefix. Right. Don't, for, don't forget about 210. Yeah, you had yeah. 210, San Antonio, right? Yep. yep. And then you had 512 in Austin. And then you had El Paso, which I don't know what El Paso is, but that was where some of the CDC people were from. Yep. Yeah, that's, I mean, um, and I mean, Texas, Texas actually had things going back then. I mean, we weren't forgotten and had a, a large section. Can't say the large section, but we had a section of the community, um, which was strange because just kind of stumbled, stumbled into that. I mean, even figuring out like kind of how you as a hoodlum, as a kid, you know, kind of became adjacent and found these people and figured out, you know, the, the first cuts into engineering and I want to know how this stuff works and then how you find other people to hang out with. And yeah, it's a group of weirdos. It's like the first time that you could be, a, you know, you might only get along with a couple people in your city because you're weird. It was the first time that you could go searching out for other weirdos. Yeah. That's what I, 
I'm very nostalgic about IRC, even though I still actively use it because you were judged solely on what you would talk about. If you were an asshole, people wouldn't deal with you. If you were a weirdo, that was fine. People would deal with you, but deal with you, but you didn't have any real preconceived notion of people because you weren't sitting there meeting them. And it was just a little bit more freeing conversation with other but, folks who were interested in, 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 in the tech and other. Yeah. I think aids. the, I'm not a big fan of the anonymity in today's internet, but I think back then the anonymity was actually really powerful because your handle was probably ridiculous. And in my case, my first handle was kind of cringeworthy, but um, that's really all you had to go on. You didn't Mm -hmm. know what the person looked like. You didn't know what their social status was or, or anything. And, and really kind of to your point, JJ, like, Really, if you were curious, then you probably could find a home. There was enough enough people that were curious. Yeah. No, the other thing that's interesting about handles, uh, a lot of us weren't super creative. And so you end up with a lot of duplicate handles. And then you don't know, are you talking about this lithium or this lithium? Oh, yeah. And you don't want to get confused for the, the jerk. Right, exactly. <laughs> or the, like, oh. the script kitty. Yeah. Is that what yours was? Lithium? No, no, no. no. My, my very first handle is, again, it's all cringeworthy. We were kids back then. There's Black Wrath. Black Wrath. All right. Yeah, I like B- that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> BW nice. for sure. But yeah. No, it was, uh, uh, and, and really it was like pound, like EFNet, pound 713. That was, that was, yeah. and then we would go and, you know, <laughs> we would go and take over. Like I, I was more, um, my interest fell more into kind of phone freaking than it did. I was mm-hmm. like hacker adjacent from that, but I really enjoyed the phone networks and super, I mean, still to this day, like where I, what I do today is, was cutting my teeth on essentially learning about that. And then I went and worked for a, a small CLEC, like worked for a phone company just cause I thought that was cool. And all the stuff that we used to go and bust up, I was like, Oh, it's literally in the other room. I can do that and be paid for it now. Um, yeah, you, I think there's a resurgence with that, with SDRs and software defined radios, because at the time, you know, messing with telco equipment and, and learning how to get long distance calls or whatever was, was, I don't know, it felt kind of new maybe, but, um, I feel like it died off for a while and there were a few people still doing it like in the chaos computer club. Like they always had really smart uh, phone network people, SS7 or whatever. But if you look at a lot of the research lately with software defined radios, there's just some amazing stuff. It's, it's like a whole, I guess you can be a radio guy now, like you could be a freaker back then. You know, you could spend all your time on radios and, and messing with different types of radios and different, all these different things. Um, and I'm, that's really awesome. Like, I'm glad, I'm glad there's some new types of exploration that people can get into. So just to qualify, when you say radios, are you talking like, is this like FM AM spectrum? Like we're actually, it's like radio radio. Yeah. Whole broadband. Have you not played with SDRs? I I haven't actually, we ran a pirate radio station in in Austin for a while. Um, we actually uh, got a, a kit and actually had up in the pecan tree at the top of my old house, the, the, party house that we all used to go to. Like we had an actual dipole up there and could get pretty good coverage, but no, I've never even heard of this. Like, like I'll have to dig into this. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're pretty wide, they're pretty broadband. So you can go anywhere from, and I'm going to get this wrong, but you can go anywhere from like 10 Hertz to five gigahertz and it's fully software defined. So if you (laughs) wanted to, you know, the, the, like the hello world of SDR is just picking up FM channels. So sure. Like you plug it in and there's some interfaces that are easier to use where you just dial in the frequency. And then there's a lot more complicated things like GNU radio where you can actually have modulation and demodulation and, um, you know, do, uh, do more complicated, uh, protocols, I guess on, on all these different bands, it's super fun. I I've, I've kind of dabbled in it. Uh, I just don't have enough time, but, um, but yeah, you, you know, I remember you running that pirate radio station, but nowadays you can kind of like run pirate everything. Sure. You can like, you know, there's been some black hat talks or 
DEF CON talks about like satellite hacking and just anything. So check it out. It's cool. You can get a, I would suggest if you want to just kind of, if you want to just receive, there's like $30 uh, DBI, DBI little dongles. And they're kind of fun to play with, but the like hack RF, which is a couple hundred bucks can actually transmit as well. So it can receive on multiple channels and transmit. Um, and then you can, you know, do the real fun stuff. Oh, I'm, I'm super into that. I know what I'm asking Santa for. Like, I like, I love that stuff. I love how, how small form factor it's actually gotten. And, and as old men now where you have extra disposable income, actually, Cody, you have kids. So I don't know if that's the case, but I can just go and Dude, have I, a pet. Mark and I quit our jobs to make a startup. So I have zero dollars. Yeah. I'm over here fantasizing about a pocket sized transceiver thinking, oh yeah, it's either that or pasta. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But is there, is there regulations on those transceivers? Like when, when you buy it, do you have to register it with like the FCC or are we getting, nope. Nope. man, it's time. I, my, it, the, dr- the dream of my sports talk radio network can, can come online anytime. Well, did, JJ, didn't, didn't the FCC come find you? No, they didn't, they didn't find us, but we actually, so the thing is, is back then when you did it, you actually had to go and crystal the actual radio and there was not adjustable frequencies. You basically were crystal. I mean, it's the same concepts of doing like a red box. You would mm-hmm. go buy the Radio Shack crystal to be able to go and lock that in. And then you were 96.7. I overlapped with a Christian radio station here. And it's amazing because you would hear them doing a sermon. And when we would kick up the actual amplifier, all this drum and bass would start filtering in and they would start <laughs> filtering out. And by proximity to where we were, we would, we would go and the uh, devil's coming. (laughs) (laughs) And we were a 626 map point when there were renegade raids, you would Uh actually come and and list when you're coming into town, tune into this radio station. We'll tell you where the the map drop point was that sort of stuff. I miss. Yeah. I I remember remember that. And for anyone that hasn't done that, it's kind of like renegade raves or, you know, where's the, where's the music going to be? And, uh, sometimes you had to jump through hoops. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of like to get into the place to end up at the right place. And then when you arrive, you're like, we're going to be here for a couple of hours and the cops are going to come and bust it up. But no, the party's not over. There's like two more map points after this. We just yeah, we'll roll the dice. Yeah. I remember being the, in the, in the freezer locker in the back of the Fiesta across from where I used to live and like cops showing up and there was probably 400 kids in there. How big is a freezer locker? It was like a huge, like frozen section that I guess was like the Fiesta storage house. And they had to Shall break in there. No, I was just going to a party. Basically. They said, Hey, here's the location. You're going to show up be very discreet. When you try to sneak in, Mm -hmm. don't don't park close. Right. Don't park close. And cops, when they showed up, like the the person that was kind of watching the front was like, look, this could be very dangerous. There are a lot of people in here and I know you have a gun. So we're going to break this up, but let's do this in a controlled where you don't have kids running. And that's smart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I remember when, uh, 32 degrees was running a lot of warehouse parties in Dallas and they did a lot of that. They did a lot of like, not only were they doing illegal raves and, and whatever, but like they were trying to take care of people, you know, they didn't want, in fact, I think Mark got arrested at one of those things, <clears throat> but they were trying to de-escalate yes. and you would think the cops would be the ones de-escalating, but it was like the 16 year old wanting to take care of friends. Yeah. Mark, tell us your rave arrest story. I was never arrested. I was detained, sir, and taken to jail. Is that arrested? No, no you had to get booked. We, you had to get booked to we were at the old, Yeah, we were at the old uh, SOA warehouse. And somebody, there was like a, a pop-up drum and bass event had popped up. And then we all showed up. Uh, and, of course, it got raided by a, a heavily armed group of officers. Were they um, in SWAT gear and stuff? Yeah, they were in SWAT oh, gear. God. They were in the whole thing. And... One thing you guys may not know about me is I'm a perpetual fucking idiot. So I was wearing uh, like a a shirt. It had like a cop on it said, I'm going to kick your ass and get away with it. And they're busting everybody for drugs. And I was the designated driver that night, sober as a church mouse, but I had that shirt on. So as they're picking everybody up, you know, busting kids for whatever they had, 
they uh, enjoyed my shirt and mm. said that I was, uh, they brought over somebody that said I was intoxicated and tried to get me in a public intoxication thing. Lost my driver's license, spent the night in a uh, loose Starrett, and then I got my driver's license back in an unmarked envelope in the mail a couple of weeks later. My parents got it. Loose Starrett is like the worst prison in Dallas. Uh, it's definitely the worst prison experience I've ever had. Um, I no, don't I'm recommend it's, it's notorious. Yeah. Well, I mean, imagine being me who it's weighed like 100, downtown, 100, right downtown. Yeah. Right downtown. It was, it was, it was, it was an experience. Yeah. I had to poop real bad, man. And I, <laughs> you didn't, you didn't go in the, no, 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 it was one, there's one toilet. Yeah. There's like 60 people in there. And it was, uh, it was probably at a time of night where you had to deal with drunks. And oh yeah. Too. Oh yeah. It was cool. It was Oof. cool. Rough. Yeah. yeah good, the, lesson, good lesson in keeping your mouth shut was, was that night. Well, if you're doing it, things that are potentially illegal, don't wear anti-cop gear. Look, I didn't start the night off thinking to myself, you know what? What I need is cops in my face while I drive my friends around. So I didn't plan for it. It did not plan ahead. Again, it goes back to OPSEC. Didn't have good OPSEC that night. Paid the price for it. Learned a valuable lesson, though. I'm yes, sure you did. That's the key is, is yeah. now, now you go through and it, like that actually has relevance. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the fact that you even just like correlated to OPSEC is, is yeah. that's a, that's a lesson that was, I mean, honestly, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed we all actually are still alive and like not actually like heavily incarcerated mm-hmm. um, for just, I was, I was laughing listening to one of the, the previous podcasts. Y'all remember home of the winners? Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody still have that? The the banner? No, no, that, that's that's in anything incriminating is probably in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's Hold just on the, Cody's infinite hard drive collection. Yeah, which uh, yeah, this digital, I have it, but yeah. Um, you know, I think bored teenagers can do that kind of stuff, or bored bored young people can get into trouble. But the the this. I don't know if it's sad or whatever, but nowadays everything is cataloged. So like we can reminisce about it, but you can't go see pictures of these things. You know, you can't like go look at Mark's Facebook profile and see him uh, getting arrested. Actually, it'd be kind of cool to go look now, but uh, you know, you can't craft your nostalgia like, like we can. We can deep fake it now. Yeah. Or, or you can go through and have somebody just go and throw your entire, you know, sorted criminal history on a blockchain and it just walks around with you. Which we're, we're, I, we're I, not going to talk about blockchain. That's yeah. fine. That's <laughs> Screw yeah. that technology. We, we, we talked yeah. about NFTs. Um, yeah. Ooh, oh, oh, that's right. Y'all touched. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, no. yeah. I want to, I want to Mark and I have talked about kind of how we got into our careers and you have been in the same career for most of your life, right? Like you have been on the network, you know, big iron side of things. Um, yeah. So I have, it's really strange. Like, um, I really did not have a lot of jobs growing up. I, um, I basically, my father kind of taught me the value of how you can do work and what that labor looks like. And he introduced me to, um, stock trading and what that would actually look like. And we didn't have allowances, but he had essentially created the tasks that need to be done at the house. And each was defined with a monetary amount that you could basically go earn by doing chores. And I kind of evaluated that and then figured out the, as a good teenager, the path of least resistance, what could I do? Minimize my time worked for my income gained and then locked all that down for my sisters and said, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. Uh, you but were then, smart. You were a smart kid. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, but, th- but that was very small because what I, what my very first job, the very first thing I really kind of created was building um, clone PCs. Mm-hmm. There was a place in Houston called ChipSmart, and you could basically go buy um, wholesale parts 
and build, you know, fabricate computers at wholesale prices. And then I would turn around and flip them retail. And we would, I mean, this was back, uh, Pentium was actually a thing, but they actually had like a side chip um, or there's another manufacturer called Cirix. And if you wanted to pay a little less than what a Pentium would have cost you, but still have some of the same power, you could go build these systems. So I, I basically created a company and I was like, I can go in there and spend $200 to buy parts and flip it for a thousand dollar machine. And I'm a, I'm a kid. I was like, I'm never doing a chore again. And then my dad was like, well, you take the money you make off that. Let's go down. And now how many parts can you buy? So all of a sudden, like, this is like my introduction to supply chain of like, okay, cool. I can do this. Uh, this is how I learned how margin works. Um, it's, it basically was like an exercise, but there was an actual market for, for doing that. This is pre Dell. Um, of course, Dell comes in, HP comes in and all of a sudden, yeah, they can do it cheaper, cheaper than I can. Um, but I was also getting ready to go to college. Um, but it got to the point where like, I was like cranking out several machines, uh, every couple of weeks. And that is not a, a, a $200 a box for a thousand dollar return. I mean, you're, you're, you're netting 800 bucks. That's crazy. Um, and I actually ended up giving some of the business off to some kids that were still down in Houston and said, look, this is what I'm doing, but I'm not taking it with me. So here's who you talk to. Here's what you get it. And did that. Um, college. I basically went to college for two years and then dropped out because ironically who I currently am the associate director of the office of telecommunication services for university of Texas. Um, they could not teach me a degree. <laughs> they had no degree program to teach yeah. me anything I wanted at that time. I basically networking routing was an elective. You got senior year and you were either going to do a double E track or you were going to go be comp sci. And I was like, I don't want a program. I want to work with the hardware. We, we talked about that. I think on the first podcast was like, there weren't options that allowed us to do what we were really interested in. Mm -hmm. You could go to a trade school. It was, it was treated, you could go to like, you know, TTI, they would, they treated it as that as you'll go to the same place to learn how to like do repairs on a Caterpillar or maybe, maybe like a CCNA or something. Uh, uh, IPX. Yeah. Old it, coax. And yeah, that's, that's what was crazy is getting the gear was hard. Networking was not something you really got to see or do or mess with. We talked about, or y'all were talking about um, modems. I mean, dial up was kind of the way that's my, my first real job was working in a, I basically worked for a few months actually at a ISP here in, um, in Austin called JumpNet, And then that was super sketch and kind of crazy. And I left and moved over to, uh, a company called Thrifty Call, which became Grande Communications. But that's really where I cut my teeth of like learning how to do stuff is I kind of fake it till I make it, got the job in there, started with doing dial-up networking and designing that and then learned all the routing infrastructure behind it. And then I was like, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to know how the guts of the internet actually works. So this is whereas y'all are so far up the stack, I'm like literally building the roads Layer one through three is all I really care about. Your payload, cool. I'll get it there fast, but I don't care if it's a virus or your social or porn. It's like it's, whatever, whatever you do on my <laughs> yeah. network is your business. Yep. Yeah. And I just, my whole job is efficiency and keeping that SLA. The data has to flow, but I don't really care what's inside of it. Yeah. You know, Grande has gone downhill since you left. Yeah. They got bought a few ways there's there's a weird it's a it's grande and this uh, other provider on the east coast and then this thing called wave it's i don't know i went down there and saw those guys not too long ago just to say hi i stole one of their engineers uh, that works for me now that was uh quality uh started started from the bottom now we're here yeah but we so, get to do the university's crazy yeah. university we get to do whatever dude is it um like what, what are you, what's the most exciting thing about networking these days? Like, you know, I mean, going from dial up to today is leap years in technology. So like, what's the hot 
networking thing right now. So we get to see a lot of really crazy stuff that never or doesn't have a lot of place in the wild. Um, because we work in a, the university environment, we have a lot of HPC or high, por- high performance computers. Um, so like TAC is like the 16th biggest supercomputer and it's here in Austin, it's owned by UT. And when you go out there and get to see what those guys are doing, they're inventing ways. Like they had to write their own actual file system because it couldn't contain the amount of space like Linux and the actual amount of bytes. They couldn't create scratch mounts that would work. So they wrote their own because it's just that much space. Cause it this has is, to like, it has to, uh, have enough data to work on. Right. So like, you'd I mean, have to mount different, uh, storage. Right. If you wanted to make a, a scratch drive actually like in a Linux environment, but you needed to be like 78 petabytes of data. Yeah. How do you, how do you allocate a, a, a partition that's 78 petabytes? Everything's <laughs> custom. It's all custom. In fact, in, on, to your question on the networking, a lot of the networking is custom. I had never seen anything like InfiniBand uh, or Roxy. So basically they do, it's RDMA over Ethernet. It is the physical memory inside a node oh. is wired together so that you are working actually like, I'm sure everybody's created a RAM drive and said, look mm-hmm. how fast this is. It is literally the DMA inside these Dell clusters are wired together so that they can make one giant memory-based swap drive. And then you can go and write whatever you want in it. And it goes at the speed of memory, not at the speed of SSD or physical media. And then you wire that across the cloud or uh, you tie it into internet too, and you wire three of these supercomputers together. And then you what make it- internet two? Uh, internet two is a, it's a research network. Um, oh, it was, it was, well, is this like some, this like yeah, some deep goes, web go, stuff. We're going like, in. How do yeah. we get on internet two? I'm done with yeah. internet one. Yeah. So <laughs> internet two is an interesting one. It was basically back in the 2000s and 90, the 90s, 2000s. Um, what they wanted to do is say, we need a place where researchers can go and do data. And it is going to not have the congestion problems that the okay. internet has. If you think about it, though, on a long enough time horizon, the internet is actually fairly good at moving data around. It obviously does a lot that we use all the time. Internet, too, kind of became like a, I don't want to call it a boys club, but it's a way for universities and HPCs to meet each other on a private network and then do things across it. But it has also started to get... um, AWS is going to exist in a research space like it does actually in the commercial sector. So Amazon lives on internet too. And all of a sudden you get enough people like Amazon on there. It feels just like internet. Well, that's kind of how the first internet started, right? Yeah. It was a way to sync up universities. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, um, it sounds like what you're saying is it's not much different. Well, like UT has AS18, which is the 18th, and it's the 18th allocation of, and ASN is basically like your, think of it like a zip code actually Mm -hmm. on the internet. They're AS18, which means they were the 18th institution on the ARPANET, like pre-internet, the military, they were the very first one. We have, or I should say they were the 18th one. Um, We have V4 space, like lots a V4 space that is in scarcity now. You can't go get IPv4 addresses anymore. They've been mm-hmm. depleted for a while now. And like the university just has them like parked because it was given to them in 1984. <laughs> it's just kind of, it just kind of hangs out. So it's crazy that like all this stuff that gets parked within the institution, um, but they they pride themselves. The university likes building stuff. Super, the supercomputers out there are... Um, and it's not just one. I mean, they've got about 16 different discrete machines that all, you know, work together and are good at doing different things. Some of them are flow dynamics. Some of them are actually like big data computations. Um, flow dynamics is huge because that works in so many different spaces. Physics needs it. Weather needs it. Blood needs it. Medical, it's, it's all about flow systems. So there's a That's lot of flow simulation. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Okay. Yeah. So they have like, uh, it's like what SGI. Dynamics of, of, interactions. Yeah. SGI was actually the first, I remember seeing a SGI Indigo. My dad worked for Texco and took us into their R and D lab so that we could actually see how this stuff worked. And it was basically flow systems through a pipeline. And, um, that's, that's what they were 
designed to do, but got to get these that guys, oil. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Texas, Texas wants to get, well, UT has got all its money because it struck black gold on the Permian basin and they owned all the mineral rights in the land. That's why we have like the biggest endowment it, depending on oh, the market. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so, UT, so they own, so oil prices affect the university. Uh, heavily. So depending on the, how the market is doing on a given day, um, UT likely has the largest endowment of any university, I believe in the world, definitely in the U S but possibly in the world. That's just um, not, not just oil endowment. that's period. And that like, cause I know that like Harvard and they have a big, um, mutual fund yeah. they manage, but you're saying this is like way beyond that. So what's, there's two different funds at UT. It's, it's, it's interesting. There's a thing called the AUF, which is the available university fund and the PUF or puff money, which is the permanent university fund. What the PUF is, is the mineral rights. And we don't ever even touch that money. The whole endowment that comes for the, the money is brought off the interest made for the sale against the principal. So mm. AUF is you basically, you don't touch the stock. You just take the interest off the top of it and that funds all the stuff. And that's, that, that's, that's how, when you're, that's when you're really balling. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when, they are and the interest and it, is your income, not the actual there, there's there's, and there's nothing more Texan than our flagship university being funded by its own oil riches. It's yeah. pretty, it's pretty delicious. T- Tamu gets a taste of it too. Tamu, yeah. there's, there's a couple state agencies or institutions that get it, but we get, we get a, a yeah, lion's share. Ta- Tamu is Texas A&M, right? Yeah. Texas A&M. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's, but all that money comes in and it translates into some really, really stellar research. I mean, we're in the time of COVID and I got to actually see some of the actual genome replication and uh, protein processing they were doing at TAC. It, it was, it was impressive. Uh, when they took that picture of the black hole and they imaged it, that uh-huh. whole thing was processed largely at TAC. And they basically had to send the hard drives came in sequence and it was pallets of the hard wow. drives that had to be oh, remounted. Man. There's not a, there is not a pipe that is big enough. I'm running this problem uh, right now. NASA ties into McDonald observatory and they're doing dark energy experiments out there. The process to get the data out of McDonald observatory out past, you know, Fort Davis on a mountain is literally, they stack up the hard drives, they yeah. load the data. It's like Amazon will do that for you. They'll load, they'll load your data into E into S three, but you have to, you have to get it to S three. The problem is, is they physically no, no, no. don't, no, they'll physically they'll do let it. you, they'll, you can ship them drives. Okay. Come get that's, it. that's, that's largely what like yeah. these guys are like, Hey, how do we get this? Like talking about a bus of a network, the slowest part is literally like the guy having to copy it to hard drives and put it in a UPS box to get it to a place that is relevant that can get it on the broader internet. They've got a little one gig connection. I got them out there and we did the math on it. And I was like, guys, you can only get data to NASA once every 13 days. That's how long it would take you at line rate to send transfer a a batch or whatever. Yeah. That's 76 terabytes you want to move. And they're like, we want more. And there's just not anything out there. It's like, dude, you're in the mountains. Yeah. If, if you ever, if you ever visit for any listeners, if you ever visit, Texas, uh, go to the McDonald Observatory is awesome. And uh, Marfa's out there. It's by El Paso. It's, it's super cool. Yeah. They, they do a lot of uh, star watching parties. You can mm-hmm. go out there and um, it's a, it's a neat, uh, yeah, it's a neat place. And I, that's one of the reasons I love working at the university. There's a lot of stuff like that, that is just spread throughout that you're trying to we get the, the the privilege of trying to network in and then know that it's doing like strong work for, you know, whatever's happening in the world. Like I, I took that job. One of the reasons is because I wanted to, one of my favorite science experiments is the large Hadron Collider and all of that data, or I shouldn't say all of it, but a lot of it is process attack. And so I, every now and again, if I'm feeling Friday and saucy, I like to go look at the VPN that's pulling in the payloads out of the LHC and feeding it into TAC to process all that data and know that that's like, you know, trying to find origins of the universe and stuff like that. And I have a tiny piece of it. I just make sure that those packets get from one place to another, but it feels good. Yeah. I mean, that's, you're the, you're the traffic cop for progress. 
Yeah, basically. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make sure that the resources are uh, equitably distributed, make sure everybody's not stepping on each other's toes, making sure when things like COVID happen, that resources are getting to the right place and people that are trying to watch Netflix can go on the sidelines. <laughs> so how, how do you... Uh, I know there's like TOS, but at the, at the, at the level you're at, like, how do you shape traffic reliably? So we have the luxury of rather than trying to do shaping, we basically overbuild. Um, so you have used, dedicated circuits. They're they, not dedicated. They're just the, the net. The, if you were to go through and add all capacity that needed to be on one side of my network at a given time, it will not exceed line rate of what we have available. So like our backbone that goes from Austin to Dallas, to College Station, to Houston, to Austin is a 200 gigab- uh, gigabit backbone that we have an MPLS backbone. I can take a fiber cut and have everything collapse to one side. And um, pre-COVID, we had capacity. Now that we're in time of COVID, everybody has gone remote. The, the campuses are largely empty. Everybody is VPNing Is that home. include students and everything? Yeah, students. Wow. I mean, they're starting, they're starting to come back now. Uh-huh. But uh, we're, we're about... We were probably around 60, 65% utilized on that 200 gig backbone. We're probably around 40 now. But when students come back, and inevitably they will, we have to make sure that they're there. And I also have to make sure that the growth that happened, like money kept flowing, grant money came in, people have new projects. And as soon as they can get back on campus, all of that's going to hit the network at once. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. So, so y'all have, so there's a, you know, kind of a ring around uh, Texas. So yep. if you're not familiar with the geography, like Dallas is North, Houston is East and, uh, Texas is kind of in the middle, but Austin is central as well. So, uh, and y'all manage that network. Mm-hmm. My team, basically, um, we operate that network. So it's basically like a private ISP that is for the, the, I guess there's 14 now. Oh, actually no one just merged. There's 13 discrete UT institutions that make up the UT system. Mm. Like there's UT Health Science Center Houston, which is in the medical center. There's UT Austin, there's UT Arlington, there's UT Dallas. So all of those tie into my infrastructure and I represent the ISP, the private ISP that allows them to use resources with one another and then connect to the internet at large. Is all of that traffic separation and dynamic, is that all software? Um, so again, I get to look at it just at layer one through three. So yeah, basically if somebody goes up the stack and they all like each discrete campus probably has their own uh, AWS cloud instance and I provide them the interconnection to get to cloud edge, but they'll have their own S3 buckets. They don't, they don't centralize that much in, right. in that. But they, what the beauty is, is my network has the ability to say, do y'all want to do a centralized initiative? Cool. Do you not want to do that? Cool. You can have that too. What kind of equipment um, is that? Um, so our, our core is all Juniper. Um, we use Juniper, uh, MXs to actually do the, the switching inside campuses are much more diverse. You have some that are Cisco shops, some that are Juniper shops. Um, it's just kind of switching that whole 200 gigs. Yeah. So the 200 gig, the whole thing is MPLS driven. MPLS is really nice because these campuses have organically grown and some of them have some really crazy stuff. MPLS allows me to wrap their crazy in a label and their crazy doesn't have to see another campus as crazy because if both these campuses could see each other's crazy at the same time, the network would kind of melt down. They do a lot of like weird stuff and they've never grown up. Um, and I, I'm, I, my networking experience is like from the nineties, but like what's MPLS? It stands for a multi-protocol label switching. It's, um, trying to think of a good way to explain it. Like the difference between switching and routing, basically an ethernet switch is, um, essentially a place where you can take data and you put it in an envelope and it's moved around everything that's connected in the ethernet switch. Routing is basically if I needed to go and leave that ethernet switch and take that envelope and take it over to another place and another ethernet switch and hand it off. So you've had to route or go another place. MPLS is um, in the OSI model, we call it like like layer 2.5. It has uh, feet in both camps. It can switch and route it allows me to basically put stuff that's in layer two in an envelope or stuff that's in layer three in an envelope. And I can basically tunnel it 
between the two. So it allows crazy Joe's research project at UT Arlington that needs to talk to like this specific building at UT Austin, but it can't route between the two because crazy Joe project requires it to be switched. I can get it over there and, and have it never the two shall see one another. Um, so it's just a way to I mean, really a lot of payloads um, or I should say headers and packets or MPLS or switches. It's just a way to put something on the top to tunnel things through other things. So the whole internet. Right. Right. VPN so it's like, is just, it's just like encapsulation with tagging. Yeah. So it's like basically a VPN, right? Like a VPN yeah, is just, it's, yeah. but it allows you as a network operator to, to understand not only the switching, but the routing of a label. Um, so I actually, I get to encapsulate all of their switching and their routing inside my label. And then I only have to be good about getting those labels around. It's, gotcha. it's a layer of entropy. I basically have pulled out from there and it just allows for deeper tunnels, but it's how I can make like AWS. I can literally make AWS look like it's directly connected to a campus, even though it goes through me It might go through internet too. It goes through all this stuff. Yeah. But you don't see that stuff. It's just, it's tunneled. Can't, can't, AW, AW, can't you hook up like a backhaul to AWS? Won't they we let you? One. Yeah. The, how do you, I mean, I can't, I, again, my, my experience is actually pulling a T1 and then connecting it to like hard, uh, physically to some kind of router or circuit or something. But like, if you're going to connect to AWS, what do you give them? So the, ev basically everything in Texas, um, if you wanted to like just blow Texas off the map, you, you go to 1950 Stimmons in Dallas and there is Op a thing. No, yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, this is, this is all common knowledge. Just no, looking at that. I'm just kidding. But, but uh, it's 1950 Stimmons in Dallas is what's known. It was the Infomart. It's actually owned yep. by Equinix now. I'm sure y'all are familiar with Equinix. Um, that's the carrier hotel. That is everybody who's anybody actually interconnects through that location. Everybody has fiber that goes to that location. So we have a presence there like anybody else with um, volume in Texas. And you can basically go and either buy a direct cross connect to Amazon. So I just so Amazon has something there. Yep. Okay. Or you can do um, Equinix sells a product. It's basically called the cloud exchange. You basically buy a 10 gig, 100 gig, whatever you need into them. And it's like a marketplace where you have virtual cross connects. It's not even physical. And you can go, hey, you know, AWS, I have a new customer that is on a campus that wants to spin up a cloud. It's all software defined. I log into a portal. I type in some information. It spits out a VLAN. I tag that headed towards the customer and go, here's your password. Here's how you're going to BGP connect. And when they do all that, it literally looks like AWS is one hop away from them. And then they run infrastructure on there. They want diversity. I have another path that goes out to Ashburn, Virginia. That's where AWS East is located. And now you have diversity. You have one in Dallas, one in Ashburn. Yeah, and yeah. this is all to send memes and yeah. Yeah. Facebook posts. Yep. Yeah. I worked at a data center company recently. And when I saw some of the, the SD-WAN big iron stuff they had, where literally somebody's script could route and change the physical fiber at a data center across the world and then suddenly have massive pipes spun up across the world and meshed. I'd realized that the, you know, ne the networking that I knew was, was way behind, you know, that that's, that's real power. Is that one of the, the, the biggest in it? Like it's hard to, we've worked in this industry for so long that it's hard to like sit back and see, you know, what are the big innovations, but like outside of maybe it is SD-WAN, but like what's been the biggest one if you were to take a step back and say, this is the biggest innovation in networking that I've had my hands on. Hmm. Hmm. That's, that's interesting because honestly networking. Okay. I'm also older now and I can tell I'm getting to the point where my understanding of the new hotness is, is I have, people on my team that I'm like, Hey, go educate yours. I've heard this buzzword and I kind of logically get what they're talking about, but go find out what segment routing is and tell me if it's got value for us and what it does. Cause largely the funny thing is, is it's all still TCP IP. IPv4 has been around forever. It's not really, it's pretty long in the tooth and mm -hmm. I, V6 adoption is actually not, I mean, it's happening, but it's not as fast. So there's not a lot of stuff that's happened in the space. That's been really, really like 
innovative or exciting, but I'll say that. And then I see what, if I'm going to look on like a five, 10 year time horizon, the OSI model, the stack, if you will, is starting to get smashed and will not be broken up into this kind of uh, data link transport session, that layer, you will end up getting where there will be white boxes that basically will interconnect with one another and it'll serve as the layer one DWDM, layer two switch, layer three router, magical box that has ASICs in it that can forward traffic. And you literally just decide what kind of network do you want to put together, but you don't have to build up the stack. Mm. I can see them taking over um, and them being, you know, lots of big people in the space, Juniper, Cisco, Arista, any of those, but how to go, this is how Amazon does it. Amazon can stand up a data center in a matter of hours by just literally flying in all the gear that's color-coded, wiring it up. It interconnects with one another, talks to their customized top of rack switch, phones home and joins the game. Mm -hmm. And it, it just does that. It's just, I mean, um, Rush has told me uh, some some pretty crazy. My uh, my brother in law is actually uh, works over for AWS to security for. Actually, he works for Amazon to security for Amazon, and some of the stuff that they actually stand up is insane. The level of Ansible interconnections that make these things like airdrop in and just like transformer themselves into data centers is just nuts. It's, it's crazy. I also don't envy his job because Amazon knock on wood hasn't been hacked. And he's like, yeah, hopefully not on my watch. That's uh that's interesting. The only, I mean, again, as an outsider, the only thing I hear is mostly about bandwidth, right? Bandwidth. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, talking to Mark at the SD, uh, uh, SDP company, like that sounded really cool as well. But at the end of the day, it's the amount of data you can push and the flexibility of where you can push it. Well, I think flexibility is really interesting. Stuff like uh, Starlink, Elon's Starlink. Mm -hmm. Eventually, now it's like, it doesn't really matter where you're located. That used to be a problem. We're talking about T1s and Gideon's DSL can only go so far. Cable modems have... SNR problems? No, nope. it's cool. I'm just going to blanket the world in a satellite field that's low orbit. How about, I don't know, 400 megabits to wherever? To anywhere. Yeah. I, I, was, I was just thinking about this driving to the store. Like, I think, you know, the, the power of information is always, I think, something we all appreciate. But, like, there could be a point where someone like China or Iran or Russia can't control because it's no longer terrestrial right it's like you can't put the great firewall on because someone can just pull out a phone that has some kind of satellite connection and now they're in different uh internet space well they can always they can always mark the satellites right if you're a nation state as well you know it just it i mean kind of to the point like it frees up a huge limitation and then the advancements can come with improving that technology you bring it back to where you started. Um, what we were just talking about at the, the beginning of this conversation was basically you can have, you know, get yourself a radio station that actually is also, you can make layers of entropy by the fact that it's all connected by not physical media in the yeah. future. What happens when it's all wireless and you can't move it through the big NSA tower in the sky? Right. No. And then, and there's plenty of projects on those software defined radios that are just like packet packet, uh, packet radio right so you could just do it's your transport and you get another one and you just give the person the same software and they can decode and you know all of these devices plug into usb so you've you know you you send some kind of serial bus message or whatever and it's as if you had a modem or a wi-fi adapter and i think we're going to see some really interesting you know young people come up with brand new uh I always like kind of subversive stuff, but uh, I think that would be really exciting. So, so I got, I have one question real quick that I want to touch on. And you said that you haven't seen a lot of major groundbreaking changes in networking and, or none of them like really excited you that much, but a little over 20 years ago, uh, a couple of dudes went in front of the government, the, the gentleman from loft. And they said that, the internet's about to be very popular. We rely on it for critical infrastructure. It's becoming an entertainment hotspot as well for the citizens. 
it has a massive problem. And this problem is called BGP. And it's the way that all of the, the, the networks work together. And they, you know, nobody understood the internet at the time. They thought that they were just some long hairs out, out making a claim. Well, to is, be fair, they did have long hair. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. And, and they, and sweet names, right? Mudge. Like, come on. Um, is BGP still a massive problem? We see, yeah. we see neighboring and peer doubtings and there's always, I love the conspiracy theories. Every time there's some kind of blip in BGP, is it still a problem? And is anything being done around fixing it? If so. Yeah, no, it is. It is still a problem. Like, like TCP is another antiquated protocol that's been around for a long time and we've advanced what it does, but it is not smart. It is essentially BGP is a way if, if the internet is this, think of the internet as a yellow, like the yellow pages and basically the IP addresses on it are all the phone numbers in the yellow pages. BGP is a way that you can exchange all the phone numbers in one set of yellow pages to another set of yellow pages. Now you get into the problem with trust. Okay, so the internet as we know it, the old internet is 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 based based on inherency of of trust. But BGP has pretty minimal trust if you even go so far as to like in, encrypt that MD5 hash on your exchanges, which a lot of people don't, and then you're just going and you're exchanging route information. Man in the middle, go for it. So how do you fix it or what are they doing? Um, there's a project called RPK, which is basically trying to build inherency and trust within the BGP exchanges so that the face of the internet shouldn't change too much. The phone numbers that people are allocated yesterday should be the same as today. So if you see a change, it should be something that um, was perhaps planned or understood so that you don't have a hijacking. Somebody just decided to grab all the networks that make up the United States and start delivering them through some other country. Um, so RPK actually comes up with a, a way to build through some of the routing databases, who owns what and who's trusted to advertise what. Um, we use a lot of filters in BGP to make sure that people don't intentionally leak routes or unintentionally misconfigure something and leak routes because you leaking routes and me accepting those routes means I think I have a new way to get to something. And that's how you end up seeing like CenturyLink melted down because basically they started accepting a default route from some tiny customer and shot all the traffic to them. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very BGP route selection is a very, very basic way of figuring out how to get things around. So it needs to be um, refined. And I think refined from a security perspective or just ripped out and replaced with something new. Um, I think it still does a a fairly good job of the exchange, but refined from the, um, I think a security perspective, a performance perspective, there are some newer protocols that are coming out. BGP is also pretty damn slow. There are roughly, um, I think last time I checked about 800,000 routes that make up the internet. So basically the IPv4 table gets broken up. And after you break it up over 30 years, it becomes so fragmented like a hard drive. You have to own a discrete route for all these different things. So when BGP goes down or flaps, a router has to relearn every single one of those 800,000 routes and figure out what's called NLRI. It's the next top it has to go to. It's a lot of thinking to figure out how to go anywhere. So that's an inefficient... BGP flapping could cause you to go dark for a long time while it's trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Um, so and a lot of new, a lot of new technologies have that kind of self healing and self replication. And I mean, all the way up the stack and yeah. um, failover and all everything. It sounds like, um, it sounds like BGP is not a bad technology, but to your point, we've fragmented it too much and we don't have a, a, any robustness there. Yeah, it's fragmented and on a long enough time horizon, it doesn't get any more joined. Aaron's job, which is the American Registry of Internet Numbers, is to try to rejoin that. But the internet's too big and is getting bigger. It just, that's why V6 was designed as a standard. They go, guys, we're going to A, run out of addresses, and B, they're going to be so fragmented. Nobody's going to be able to get anywhere because it's just 
super broken up. Whereas but V6 is, has... V6 can still be fragmented, but the bet is that there's so much of that space that it would be forever until you've right. got to kind of slice it up. And when they, when they built V4 back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, they never thought they would use up that number of address space. That 32 bits was going to last forever. Basically going to 64 um, in a V6 in number, it's big enough now, but they're like, it's something crazy. Like there's enough IP addresses in IPv6 for you to go through and put like a couple million for every square inch on the planet. It's it's just a it's they created a bigger bucket, but is it ever going to get completely consumed? Sure, absolutely. Is it 128 bits or is it 64 bits? Um, that's a good question. I actually don't. I I think it's 64 because I believe you have 16 octets in V6, and you basically have you can put a you. We would actually do this at Grande just so it was real world readable. We would embed this IPv4 address as the last four octets inside an IPv6 address. Mm -hmm. So you can look at it, even though that IP, when you actually convert, it's also hexadecimal. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not numerical. Um, So when you converted it to hexadecimal, you could look at it and see the IPv4 address you were talking about inside the middle of an IPv6 range, which is just so like our human minds can like comprehend it. (laughs) Also, if y'all remember back uh, from the old days, you can, I see this, it's kind of the wild west in V6. Lots of IP addresses that just have boobies spelled out in hexadecimal as Mm -hmm. the last four octets, just that sort of nonsense. Boobs and dead beef. (laughs) Yeah, and dead beef. Security, you want to go and hack somebody and stuff? V6 is the way to actually enter in. Most people don't even know how to write a V6 firewall. So V4, that's hard way. Now you got my attention. Yeah, (laughs) just just hack it on the V6 side. Yeah, Honestly. I think, I think um, a lot of people a lot of people see V six as something you can't enumerate or you something you can't perform recon on, which is not the case. It's not true, but uh, I think there's that kind of loose, loose and free with it because it's there's so many of them, and uh, someone might be like, "Oh, no one will port scan me because I'm on this little bit," but. Is there, are there ways to figure out, well, I know there are ways to figure out what these six things are allocated. Yeah. Oh yeah. You absolutely can. It's what it is, is, um, this is a big problem I see actually in security. You can build as much security as you actually want on the interconnections between networks where you basically have, that's where security is the most strong is if you have a common point and you've created that as the actual interconnection between two places on the internet and all my security investigates, things can go only go in and out from this protected, controlled, policy-driven point. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens when you go and just say, but... Bob built a bridge that's right adjacent to the point that has nothing on it. That's what V6 is. Somebody just said we needed to be V6 connected. They stuck themselves on the V6 routing table, but they didn't write any V6 firewall and none of the actual Mm. security they have is V6 aware. And so all of a sudden you're just open up on that side. I mean, like in some cases, like no firewall because Bob doesn't know how to write a V6 firewall. It's kind of, if you don't understand V6, it's, it's, Writing a default route in V6 is confusing if you don't know what it looks like. So they just connect it so that they could check the box and say, yes, I'm on the V6 internet. But the implications are, I mean, that's a, I, Mark and I talk about this all the time with AlphaWave, the adoption of the cloud and the digital transformation and all these new technologies are amazing, but you've increased the complexity exponentially. So that's always difficult to secure. Yep. And kind of what you're talking about with V6, um, it's like somebody comes down to Bob and says, Bob, we need V6. And he says, all right, I don't have the time to spend to learn how to secure it. I'm just going to get the job done and I'm going to bypass any other things that we have because I have to get this thing connected. And it's yeah. confusing. I mean, yeah, um, it's, it's difficult and confusing and it is, but it is, it is just another it, V6 is just another network. If you think about it, like the internet, we've seen like the image of all these things that are interconnected at V4 and that beautiful picture of everything wired mm-hmm. together. If you look, you can find an image of what the V6 internet looks like. It's just another one of those with smaller hosts actually connected, but they are still connected to the same V4. You can hack through V6 and turn around and route out V4. It's, it's a super, it's, it's interesting on, on trying to find good vectors 
And obviously hacking is difficult. So try to find the weakest link. And if you can't tackle the human component, which is always the weakest link, then try to go through a door that's just not secured. And I don't think people realize like how interconnected V6 actually is, but it is yeah. not secured. Not a lot of people talk about it. Well, that's what Mark and I's product does. It, um, you know, we, we like to think that there's like, you know, a long time ago, there was a security guard that walked around and they checked doors and windows and they're like, yep, you know, everything's locked. But nowadays it's so decentralized and there's so much of it that you can't possibly check every door and window. Yep. And so it happens, right? It happens that people just leave something completely open and then they forget about it. So like our product attempts to try to discover all those things, but um, I mean, this conversation has made me want to go uh, hack some V6. It's yeah. always good. No, I, and I mean, just talking to y'all's products from what I, I saw, I do like the approach. I like the idea of like this V6, V4, BGP, any of these things and stuff. You basically look at the surface and find things that are interesting on the surface. Yep. And that's really, really good because everybody can go and say, well, you know, I've got my surface pretty secured. And then that's your end right there. You go, let me show you something that I found that isn't. Oh, totally. We, we, I don't think we've ever talked to, uh, talked to anybody that knew what they had. I mean, yeah. and, and, and uh, it's not their fault. It's impo- It's really, really difficult. Yeah. And you need, you need automation, you need scale, you need all these things that, uh, allow you to do the discovery. But, um, yeah, that's the other thing is we used to rely on, network maps uh and what was it vizio used to do vizio of your and but now that changes every day like there's (laughs) imagine doing a vizio of your network every 10 minutes right that's kind of where we're at with the dynamic nature of of the every piece of the stack Uh, so where is uh, where is your data you probably don't know it's all over. Well, and, and I mean, for most people, they, they don't, they shouldn't care, right? Like, right. I mean, a business needs to be a business and they need things pushed certain ways and, and they don't care. I think, um, I think maybe networking and security are always the people that come in and say, no, you can't do that. Or you're, you know, this, I have to kind of spend some time to make sure that it's not a complete cluster, uh, you know, and, and slap hands once in a while. Well, dude, we've, uh, I think we could probably do hours of this with you, JJ, but sure. I really have enjoyed this. And yeah. usually it's Mark and I just bullshitting, but I've actually learned something today. I was going to say, congratulations on our first actually useful podcast. Yeah. yeah I, I love this stuff. And, you know, I'm happy to, I just enjoy talking about it again, getting older and stuff. It's, I'm lucky to have a lot of really smart people and, um, but it's nice to be able to go and just kind of talk, like, let's go way up the stack and think about this holistically. That's, that's the sort of stuff that is amazing to me. And I just, the size and scope of it is, is changing to a, a way that is unfathomable. This whole idea. I mean, I remember my dad going and being like, you know, maybe sometime in my lifetime, I'll see like a rocket land on Mars. And I'm like, we are literally about to have a ISP that covers the planet. I'm like <laughs> yes. cool data anywhere. Cool. So before we go, JJ, uh, what uh, you get one new musical recommendation to the listeners? Uh, something that something that's got your ear in twenty twenty one. Please please share. Oh, that's a that's a tough one. I wasn't prepared for that. So the um, shit. What is actually really kind of? I very much enjoy the new run visuals. Oh, yeah. uh, that oh, has yeah. been super, super strong. Um, something a little more low key that people may not have heard of. Uh, there's a group called keys and crates that I very much enjoy. This is all I, I produce electronic music. There's a lot of, um, bass music, but, um, those guys are real good. So yeah, I'd say uh, that the brand new runs, the jewels or, uh, keys and crates. Awesome. What, uh, you're still making music, right? I am actually, where, uh, where, where can we hear your music? Um, so you can actually, we just changed the band name, um, but it's just a uh, tone breaker and knocked them. Uh, we're up on Mixcloud. Uh, you can find us on Spotify. We're on magic magic, uh, is the record label. And, uh, we actually just did a, um, really cool fundraiser for, um, 
music by black composers. We actually raised $2,000 to, um, nice. they basically write cheat music for underprivileged children that was written by black composers. So they have something to actually learn how to play instruments for. So that we raised. super cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, we appreciate it. We're, we're going to have you on again. Um, I want to hear about networking. Go play with an SDR. Tell me what you think. I'm you, on could it, just, you could just come over here and borrow mine. I have like two hack RFs and, um, but anyways, man, thanks for coming by. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure guys. Thanks for having me. Yep. All right. We're signing off alpha wave after hours. We, uh, we Mark and I did not teach you anything, but our guest JJ taught you something. So take that home, get into networking, hack some IP V six and uh, get back with us. JJ. Thanks man. Yeah, for sure. All right. See y'all. See ya.